It is very good to be with you at this virtual online Triduum retreat. I so appreciate the invitation from Father Boniface Hicks to participate. I am Dr. Peter Melanowski. I am a passionate Catholic. I am a clinical psychologist in that order. My passion is all about overcoming the psychological and human formation issues that keep us from a deep, personal, intimate relationship with God, our spiritual father, Mary, our spiritual mother, Jesus, our brother and savior, and the Holy Spirit who sustains us. This presentation is The Psychological Agony in the Garden. Now, much has been written about Jesus' suffering and his passion, but relatively little has been understood about the psychological aspects of that suffering. It has been very underappreciated and even less understood, even less appreciated, are the disciples' internal experiences of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think this is a huge omission, and I want to walk you through the events in the four gospel accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane. But before I do that, I want to give you a brief primer on human stress responses. If we're going to understand what our Lord and what the disciples went through in the Garden of Gethsemane from a psychological perspective, we need to understand human stress responses. And just a reminder that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told, quote, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning, end quote. In other words, Jesus really is true man. And when he went through the passion, when he went through the struggles and the Garden of Gethsemane, he did so in the fullness of that humanity. So let's talk about two stress responses. The first one I'm going to talk about is sympathetic arousal. And the second one I'm going to talk about is the dorsal vagal response. So sympathetic arousal, what is that? When our sympathetic nervous system is activated, we are all about survival. That's familiar to us as being in the fight or flight mode. The body is mobilized for action. We have very high levels of energy in this state. We have an adrenaline rush. The klaxons are going off. We're going to battle stations. There's not a lot of relationality when you are in fight or flight mode. You breathe faster. Your heart rate rises. Your heart pounds in your chest. There's blood pressure rising. There's hypervigilance. There's high alert. Pupils are letting in more light, looking and listening for danger. There is no sense of safety. There's a sense of impending danger. There's a potential for panic. There's a potential for rage. There's efforts to escape. There's the disconnection from others. It's not a sustainable state because your adrenaline is up, your cortisone is up, your body can't take it for long periods of time, your heart couldn't stand it. And in that space, when you're in that sympathetic arousal, fight or flight, your capacity for complex, flexible reasoning is very much reduced. Can you imagine playing a good game of chess when you're in fight or flight mode? You know, like when you're running away from a tiger, can you make good moves on the chessboard? No. So that is a brief summary of sympathetic arousal, fight or flight mode. But there's another one that people often don't recognize in response to stress, and that's the dorsal vagal response. And all of this is from polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges. I really like the way that Deb Dana presents it, but just to give you a little background if you want to learn more. 
In the dorsal vagal response, this follows, this follows the sympathetic arousal. This is the freeze response. This is where we collapse into a kind of lifelessness, right? The dorsal vagal system takes over within us and shuts us down. This is the freeze response. Everything goes offline. Almost all of our brain goes offline and we shift into conservation mode. We do this like instinctually. It's a response to what seems inescapable. We numb out, we disconnect, we dissociate, we space out, we feel disconnected from the present like we're untethered or floating, there's fogginess, fuzziness, collapse. We can feel really alone, lost, unreachable, invisible. We can lose our sense of identity. Safety and hope seem to be lost. We can lose consciousness altogether. There's this intense lethargy often, feel really sloggy, like you're heavily sedated, this feeling of being stuck or frozen. And there also can be this deep despondency, this great sorrow that overwhelms us. It can be dark and silent and cold inside, like I'm a rock, like I'm an island. This is all about protection, self-protection. And this is what happens sometimes when you see animals playing dead, like playing possum. So there's just a loss of abilities here. We can't listen to others very well. We can't share very well. We have very little agency. We can't focus. And the story, the narrative inside is one of despair. A message that the world is cold, empty, uninhabitable. Messages that I'm unlovable, invisible, lost, and alone. And so those are the two stress responses in a nutshell. The sympathetic response, which is the fight or flight response. The dorsal vagal response, which is the freeze response. And so now with that little bit of background, I want to walk you through the agony in the garden. Now, cautions here, right? There's possibilities that you could have parts that get activated, that there could be some triggering going on here. And so I want you to be really mindful of what's happening inside as we dive into the experience of our Lord and his humanity and the experiences of the apostles and their humanity. So if you find that you need to take a break, if you find that you're leaving your window of tolerance, that you're you know, moving into that fight or flight mode, going into hypoarousal, that's that sympathetic nervous system activation, then let's take a break, shut it down, you know, reground yourself. Or if you find that you're dropping into hypoarousal, exiting your zone of tolerance to the downside, where you're getting into that freeze response, you're numbing out, beginning to dissociate, things like that, then we also want to titrate that. We want to regulate that. It's a good thing to shut down this presentation for a while, let yourself regroup. Okay, We want to be honoring our, our humanity and our human capacity to take these things in. So I am going to be using the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition for Scripture for this. And I'm going to be really looking at Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, and John chapter 18. Those are the accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane and what happened there in the Gospels. So let's just start with a little bit of background on Gethsemane. From the Hebrew Got Shemenim, which means oil press, which which suggests that the Garden of Gethsemane was a grove of olive trees in which there was an oil press. Right? And that's significant because this was the scene, I think, this is my opinion, 
This is the scene of the greatest drama ever, Gethsemane. This was the key moment in all of human history. The moment when Jesus decided irrevocably to give himself up to the most terrible, agonizing suffering in order to redeem us from our sins. All of our human existence turned on this decision of our Lord in his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's that significant. And let's go back. Let's go back for a minute to original sin. Remember, original sin, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, ruptured our relationship with God. That all happened in a garden. That all happened in the Garden of Eden when we lost our relationship with God. We lost that harmony with God. We lost that harmony with each other. We lost the harmony within ourselves. That all happened in the in a garden, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, which I believe for all intents and purposes was the start of the passion. That was the place when Jesus committed himself to carrying out all of what his father asked him to do in order to save us. That was the decision point when Jesus embraced it all and accepted it all at such a great cost, at such a great psychological cost. And so Curtis Mitch, Edward Sree, two biblical scholars and theologians, they said, quote, it is no exaggeration to say that this is the defining moment of Jesus' earthly life, the Garden of Gethsemane, because of the decision. So let's walk through this. At the beginning of this, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus gives his disciples the command to pray. He says, sit here while I go yonder and pray. Luke gets more specific right off the bat. Luke says, Luke has Jesus say, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus goes off and prays. He's modeling the prayer. Jesus, it's interesting, right? Jesus does not ask the disciples to pray for him. He asks them to pray for themselves and to pray specifically that they don't enter into temptation. That's going to be really significant in just a little bit because there's real implications as to whether they prayed or didn't pray. Now, side note here. There is no mention of Satan's presence in the Garden of Gethsemane in any of the gospel accounts. Many people just assume Satan was there, and that may be because of the impact of Mel Gibson's 2000 film, The Passion of the Christ, with Rosalinda Celentano acting in the role of an unforgettably creepy and scary Satan. Right? So, But it's also a reasonable assumption, right? Especially with Jesus' command to his, to his disciples that they pray that they don't enter into temptation. That It seems to make a lot of sense, right? So let's just speak a little bit about temptations because this is an area that I deal with a lot as a clinical psychologist. Remember that St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us that grace perfects nature. It doesn't destroy it. In my experience, when clients of mine or others that I've worked with in various ways, when they experience external temptations, ones that might have a demonic influence to them, those external temptations focus on the weakest links in the person's natural human formation. The weakest links 
in our natural human formation tend to be where Satan, where demons focus. Satan and the demons look for weak spots within our human natures and try to exploit them. The parts of us that we reject within ourselves, demons want to connect with those parts of us. The parts of us that we condemn, that we deny, the demons want to accept those parts and enter into relationship with those parts of us. Satan and the demons use our shame against us, for example. And what I'm saying here is let's not separate the natural realm and the spiritual realm when we're addressing this question of temptation. Temptation is not just a spiritual thing. Now, I also make a distinction between impulses and temptations. Impulses are what some people call inner temptations. Okay, Impulses are things that arise in us. They are desires toward something that isn't good for us, but they come from within our humanity. I think of temptations as coming from outside of us, coming from demons, right? So in this moment, at the beginning, Jesus was asking his disciples to prepare for what was about to happen, to seek solace, to seek strengthening. And remember, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he gave them the Our Father. Our Father. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And then obviously the rest of the prayer. He wanted the disciples to enter into a relationship with their father. This was really, really clear and really startling, the intimacy of the relationship that we are to have. So that's what he's commanded his disciples to do, right? Uh, It's pretty clear that they didn't do it. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But before we go there, And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But before we go there, we need to talk about the sorrow and the distress. In Matthew, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In Mark, it says that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, and repeated, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And if you go down into the Greek here, if you look at the Greek words to describe the intensity of this psychological experience, Mary Healy brings this up in her Catholic commentary on sacred scripture from Mark. She says that these verbs, these these Greek verbs are so forceful. They imply anguish, alarm. It's hard to put into words the intensity of the suffering that our Lord is experiencing here. He is distraught in his humanity. This is not some kind of Jewish hyperbole, exaggeration, you know, creative license and poetic language. And no, he is sorrowful even unto death. The crushing weight of sorrow, sorrow for every sin committed by every man, every woman, and every child in the entire history of the world, and the entire future history of the world, every sin, sorrowful unto death. That implies a dorsal vagal shutdown. That's how I look at that. You know, think about the intensity of carrying all the sins of every single man, woman, and child throughout all of human history and the entire future of the world. 
That includes that time when you pulled that girl's hair in third grade. You remember that, right? That includes all those harsh words to your siblings and all the times you fought in the car on those long car trips, right? You remember that? And all of the things that you've done in your adulthood that divided you from other people and that impaired or harmed or even severed your relationship with God. All of that and all of the sins of every human being, the crushing weight of sorrow, that is beyond imagining. Watch with me. Jesus asked his disciples to watch with him. Let's take a look at what happened to Jesus' posture in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the standard way to pray for Jews was to stand. You prayed standing on your feet when you addressed God. But in Luke 22, it says that Jesus knelt down. And the way that I interpret this going on was that he sank to his knees. He sank to his knees. And then Mark goes further. He says, Jesus fell to the ground. And Matthew, even further, Jesus fell on his face, a prostrate position. He fell on his face, not Jesus' face not turned to the side. This is a very uncomfortable position. His face on the ground, prostrate. And what that position means is completely overcome, lacking vitality, lacking the power to rise. This is a position of distress, of exhaustion, of extreme physical weakness, of duress. The sins of the world crushing him, bearing him down, the anticipation of his suffering weighing on him because he was seeing what it would take in order to carry out his father's command. What it would take for the redemption of your soul, what it would take for the redemption of my soul and the souls of everyone else. And he prayed, and what did he pray? According to Mark, Abba, Father, Abba, right? Daddy, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wills, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, says St. Luke, right? Remove this cup from me, the cup of suffering. Praying this on his face on the ground, the intensity of the suffering. And then Luke, the physician, right? He adds a detail that's not included in the other gospels. He adds that there was sweat like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Well, this is a medical condition called hematidrosis or sometimes hematohydrosis or hemidrosis. I'm going to call it hematidrosis. That's a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands, that's when those little blood vessels rupture and it causes blood to exude through the sweat glands. It happens under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. There's lots of documented cases of this. But you know what's interesting is you begin to look at that literature and I spent a, a fair amount of time looking at 
the literature on hematidrosis, almost always there's like this like pink sheen on the face or on the hands. That's not what Luke is talking about. Luke is talking about great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That's what the sweat looked like. And that happens when you are in sympathetic arousal because again remember what happens there is your your heart races right your blood pressure rises the blood pressure got so great within our lord that it burst the blood vessels that fed his sweat glands and his blood flowed from him i think again this is my own speculative melanoski theology here but i think that's another wound I think that's the unrecognized wound. We talk about, you know, our Lord's five wounds. I think this is the first of the wounds of the passion is the internal distress being just so great that it forced his blood from his body. Think about that. The intensity of the distress. There is nothing in our suffering that we experience that our Lord doesn't know from his own personal experience. Anything that at least does not stem from sin, right? Because he's like us in all things but sin. An angel came from heaven strengthening him. And St. Luke tells us, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. He prayed more earnestly. So in spite of the way that his body is reacting, he is still engaged with his father. I can't imagine being able to hold on to that and not dropping in to some numbed out dissociated place. But our Lord stayed with it. He took the advice that he gave to his apostles. He was prepared. The apostles were not prepared. He was prepared for this temptation. This moment where he is bleeding from his face, from his hands, when he is, when his heart is racing, when he is so crushed by the intensity of the suffering, this, this more than anything else in the psychological realm, proves his humanity. This was a man. Jesus was a man. He was truly man. He was truly human in his suffering. What was going on with his disciples at this time, right? Let's go back. Remember, our Lord had commanded them to watch and pray that they not enter into temptation. Indeed, the spirit is is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Luke... He goes back to them and he says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray that you enter not into temptation. Matthew and Mark talk about how the apostles' eyes were heavy with sleep. And sometimes the apostles get criticized in the Garden of Gethsemane for being lazy, for being sleepy, for being fatigued. You know, kind of unattuned, unaware. There's sort of this, and and in some ways it makes sense, right? There's a sort of implicit criticism in our Lord's words to to Simon Peter. He says, "Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into into temptation." 
right? But I don't think that this was just laziness. Our Lord never said it was laziness, right? I think looking at this as just laziness or, or just fatigue is a total mischaracterization. And the idea that the apostles didn't know what was going on, I think that's also a mischaracterization. I think parts of the disciples knew exactly what was going on and couldn't bear it. They weren't prepared. The disciples saw the blood flowing, dripping from our Lord's face in his hands. They saw him shuddering, right? They saw him staggering under the weight. They saw him face down on the ground. And Luke tells us that the disciples were, quote, sleeping for sorrow, end quote. Not sleeping out of laziness or fatigue, but sleeping for sorrow. Again, powerful Greek words here, going back to that dorsal vagal shutdown. They couldn't handle it. They didn't follow our Lord's command to pray sufficiently. They weren't strengthened by our Lord. They were lying on their own strength and they couldn't bear it. They shut down. They shut down. Remember? Disconnection, numbing out, conservation mode, fuzziness, collapse, loss of identity, this loss of consciousness altogether, right? That happens in a dorsal vagal shutdown response because the situation is so desperate. They don't know that there's anything they can do. They forget what our Lord told them. Their, their systems are going offline. Their brains are shutting down, right? And the story is one of despair, right? They put so much trust and the power of Jesus. They don't understand what's going on. They're confused. It's not making sense. This is not what they were expecting. Now, I do want to be clear that nervous system dysregulation does not imply that you've been sinning or disobeying God, right? Sometimes when there's complex trauma histories, situational factors, our nervous systems can take on something of uh, very much something of their own life within us. So I want to be careful about that. I want us to understand that so that if you have these experiences of going into sympathetic hyperarousal, fight or flight, or dropping into these numbed out dissociated dorsal vagal states where you shut down, that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't at all mean that you, you've been sinning or something like that. So I want to just be clear about that. Remember, our, our Lord was focused on loving the disciples. He was trying to prepare them. He, he told them three times to pray and to resist temptation. He understands the weakness of their flesh. He's gentle with them in spite of the agony that he's going through. Three times our Lord prayed that the cup of suffering may be taken from him. Three times he affirms that he accepts the cup of suffering from his father. And it's in that third affirmation, it's in that third affirmation that he says yes and he triumphs. That was the moment. That was the defining moment. That's when he won the battle within his humanity. Because in that yes to his father, he accepted everything that was going to happen. The rest of the passion was simply 
executing against what he already accepted. He won the battle within in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yes, that implied the cross. And yes, the cross was absolutely essential. But the battle was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now he comes back. Now is the moment when Judas shows up with the authorities, right? with those who would arrest him. Jesus comes back in full control, full command of the situation. How does he greet Judas? Does he condemn Judas? He reaches out to him. He calls him by name. He says, Judas. And he also refers to him as friend. Jesus is fully self-possessed. He's back in a ventral vagal state. He is able to reach out in love to the one who betrayed and condemned him. To reach out to him in love and in hope, still offering that connection, still offering the friendship. Jesus knew all that was about to befall him. He had gone through it all in the agony in the garden. And in John, he asks the authorities, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That was a theophany, right? A visible manifestation of God to humankind. I am There Jesus was, fullness of his humanity and fullness of his divinity. And Jesus is the one who's giving commands. He says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Do you notice who's giving the commands here? Who's in charge of the situation? It is our Lord. Let these men go, his disciples, right? This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom thou gavest me, I lost not one. Jesus is calling the shots. Jesus heals the high priest servant Melchus' severed ear, right? He's doing miracles in a place where there was a very little faith at that time, very little faith but his own. And he's teaching Peter and the other disciples about the need for the cup of suffering and the passion not to get in the way by drawing swords. Jesus was ready. Jesus was prepared. Jesus had won the battle within. And so in those moments, in dealing with Judas, with the love and the compassion And in the power of his presence, he's truly God. The Garden of Gethsemane, for me at an experiential level, is the greatest proof of Jesus' hypostatic union, that he was both true God and true man. Such humanity, such fragility, such neediness in his prayer, on his face, on the ground, and such power, such perfection, such love as he comes into contact with Judas and the authorities.
And so that ends the conceptual part of this. That ends the sort of like talk that I wanted to give. But I wanted to offer you an experiential exercise as well. Um, because I think the example of the apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane is so potentially fruitful for us to learn from. Right. So I wanted to offer you an experiential exercise, a reflection, an opportunity to go inside and learn more about yourself. Now, this can be difficult material when we begin to work with Jesus's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to, again, be, if you decide to do this, to, uh, to be attentive to your window of tolerance. Notice if you're going to be, if you're, if you're exiting to the upside, to fight or flight or sympathetic activation or dropping into the downside of um, dorsal vagal activation, shutting down or numbing out. You don't have to do this exercise. If you've, if you've got like alarm bells going off or warnings happening inside, I think we should pay attention to that, right? And you can also, if you do decide to try it, you can stop at any time. You can reground yourself. We don't want to steamroll any parts of you that have objections to doing this kind of work. And it's good to do this exercise when you have the time and space and privacy to do it. So if you happen to be driving while you're listening to this or engaging in other activities that require you to divide your attention, it's not a good time to do it. And to take what is useful to you, to feel free to go your own direction if that seems what's best. You're free to pause, you know, and to, and to do your own work inside if that's helpful to you. It's good to have pens and pencil and paper to write down things that might be helpful, like a journal. That could be during the exercise or afterwards. Again, what's helpful to you? It could be to map out things, drawing, if that's helpful. The main thing is a lot of gentleness with yourself. This is a moment here to really care for yourself, for your parts. You know, our Lord commanded us in Luke 10, 27, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we are, to, we are supposed to love ourselves in an ordered way, especially those parts of us that we may treat as lepers or tax collectors or sinners or lost sheep. We want to really be compassionate with all of ourselves because we're to love the Lord our God with our whole heart and our whole mind and our whole soul and our whole strength. Right? All of us, every fiber of our being, that's what I want for you, is for you to be able to love God completely with the entirety of your being. And that means... That means that we need to be integrated. That, mean, that means that we need to be self-possessed. So if you get distracted while we're doing this exercise, that's okay. That's common. You can refocus. But if that's not possible, then I'd get curious about what, what the distraction is all about. Why might there need to be a distraction at this point? So I'm going to invite you to imagine yourself with the other disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. I invite you to enter into the scene on Holy Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Seeing your Lord in your mind's eye, seeing Jesus shuddering, staggering, struggling under the weight of the world's sins. Seeing Jesus sink to his knees seeing him fall on his face. Seeing Jesus prostrate, bleeding from his head, his face, 
his hands. Seeing him as the apostles would have seen him. And I'm curious, what makes it hard for you to stay present in this scene? What makes it hard for you to look at our Lord, to watch with him? Would it be okay for you to lean into seeing our Lord, sensing our Lord in the intensity of his distress and his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane? Can you lean into that? Can you go inside and notice if that's possible? And I'm curious about what might get in the way of that for you. What might make your eyes heavy? What may cause the impulse to turn away and not watch and shut down? What makes it hard for you to stay present? And specifically, I'm going to invite you to notice what's going on in your body. What do you notice in and around? What do you notice in or around your body? Body sensations. what's happening in your body. And what about your emotions, right? What is your most noticeable emotion as you consider our Lord in the agony of his suffering, in his distress and his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do you notice in your emotions? Guilt? Shame? Fear or anxiety? Sorrow? Sadness? 
Or maybe you don't feel much. Maybe there's a numbness or an apathy or an emotional shutting down. What kinds of assumptions or beliefs might be coming up? Can we be open to those assumptions or beliefs? Can we ask that they not be censored inside just so that we can know what they are? That doesn't mean we endorse them. Assumptions and beliefs about Jesus, about ourselves. can we get curious about why there might need to be distractions if there are distractions some way that that's trying to help I think if there are distractions and so I'm going to invite you to pick one thing the thing inside that's most noticeable the, the most noticeable body sensation or the most noticeable emotion or thought or impulse or desire whatever is most noticeable and we're going to call that a trailhead a trailhead the beginning of a trail that we could explore together And I'm really curious for you if it would be okay to listen to the message that that trailhead, that inner experience that's really prominent, to listen to the message that that is trying to convey to you. There's a part of you trying to tell you something, probably a part in distress, that's, that may be trying to tell you something through that trailhead. And can you listen to that message? Something about the passion of our Lord, his psychological agony, may have activated this part of you, it could be a part that's hidden, a part in your own inner darkness or a part that's been rejected. Maybe we can listen to that part now. And does that part know that you, as your core self, that you can be the bridge between Jesus and the rest of you? The parts of you that might not understand, the parts of you that have distorted God images, 
parts of you that may misinterpret what happened in the gar- in the garden of Gethsemane the parts of you burdened under shame or guilt or pain or sorrow or fear that you as the self, the core self, can help the other parts of you in this whole endeavor of connecting with Jesus, that they don't have to do it on their own. Maybe a part of you has questions for Jesus that that part would like you to ask our Lord in his suffering. And if it's too much to work with Jesus in his agony, we can help our parts connect to Jesus at other times like Jesus as an eight-year-old or Jesus as an infant. Or perhaps with Our Lady, our co-redemptrix, who shared in our Lord's passion and who is our spiritual mother. That's sometimes a lot easier than connecting with Jesus for some parts of us. Can that part of you with that prominent inner experience feel your love and feel your care for it? Is there something in the way, something blocking it? I'm just going to invite you to notice inside how things might have changed in your body or in your emotions or in your beliefs or assumptions or thoughts or in your impulses and desires. Just notice if there's a change as you've begun to connect and perhaps be more integrated as you make contact with other parts of you. I'm just going to invite you to have that big open heart to your parts. It doesn't mean that we approve every impulse, every desire within us. A lot of compassion and a genuine interest in our parts. And as we wrap this up, I'm just going to invite you to have a lot of gratitude for being able to connect inside to the degree that you did. And since this will be recorded, you'll have the opportunity to do this exercise again with a different part, if that's helpful, with a different trailhead. And this doesn't have to be the end of this connecting. You can bring these things 
into your work with your own parts internally, your own human formation work, and then also into prayer, into the connecting with our Lord and our Lady. And if it's helpful to write down what you learned, give your parts a voice in writing that can be really appealing. And I'll have some more recommendations for you in just a little bit if this kind of experiential exercise was helpful to you. And so as we wrap up here, I just want to issue you an invitation those of you that listen to my podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, know that my listeners can reach out to me any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time for conversation hours. That's on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. 317-567-9594. I've set that time aside for connecting with people who listen to my work. Or you can also email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. Now, my podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, it's all about overcoming the natural level impediments to a deep and abiding relationship with our Lord and Our Lady. And I wanted to point out that you can connect with that podcast on any of the major podcast players, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all of them. You can also go to our website, soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC for Interior Integration for Catholics. And a few episodes that are relevant to what we talked about today, episode 89, which is called Your Trauma, Your Body, Protection versus Connection. There's a lot more about polyvagal theory and our stress responses in that episode. If you want to learn about internal family systems, which is more about like the parts within us, episode 71, A New and Better Way of Understanding Myself and Others. There I talk about my own parts, uh, 10 parts of me. There's also episode 73, which is, is internal family systems really Catholic? Where we look at how to harmonize internal family systems with a Catholic understanding of the human person. Episode 37 of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast is all about shame. And as part of that, we get into how Satan seeks to use our shame against us. If you want to learn more about Judas's experience, episode 46 Shame and Tragedy, Judas Iscariot, and You. And this is one of my favorite episodes, episode 47, Shame and Redemption, St. Peter and You. St. Peter, my namesake, I have so much in common, so many characteristics in common with St. Peter. And so we really get into his internal experience of his relationship with our Lord. And then episode 48, St. Dismas, Shame and Repentance, all about St. Dismas, who is the good thief. All of these are relevant in our in our the days here of the Triduum as we come up into Easter. And all of these episodes that I'm sharing with you focus on the central role of shame and how much shame drives the impulses within us that are harmful to our relationship with God, to our relationship with others, and to our relationship with ourselves. But the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast is just a small part of Souls and Hearts. Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com, that's our online outreach to bring the best of psychological and human formation resources to you. That's our little corner of the vineyard, human formation. 
And we have podcasts, courses, shows, blogs. I do a, a weekly email reflection. There's all kinds of resources all about preparing the way for the Lord in our human formation. That's why St. John the Baptist is our patron. He prepared the way for the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to check all of that out at soulsandhearts.com. We also have communities. And this is a special message for those of you at the virtual online Trudum retreat. The participants, you participants in that retreat, might be particularly interested in our communities. The Resilient Catholics community. Well, this is for people that are really invested in their human formation, willing to, to spend time, money, and effort on it, who want to be with other like-minded Catholics on the journey, who want a deep, intimate relationship with God and with Mary, a real human personal connection, and people who realize there are some natural level impediments to that deep relating. People who want to become saints, who want to be pioneers at the cutting edge in this adventure of human formation, really at the tip of the spear, the first explorers of human formation, grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person. It's all for Catholic laymen and laywomen, although we do also have priests and religious in there as well. So there's all kinds of things associated with that. Check it out at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We are reopening registration every June and every December. Also, for those of you that are therapists, that are Catholic therapists, registered or licensed mental health providers, we have the interior therapy, we have the interior therapist community that's all about the human formation for the Catholic therapist. Check that out, soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC if you're a licensed Catholic mental health professional. And then we also have Catholic Journeymen, which is all about Catholic men seeking restoration, wholeness, and integrity, especially in the areas of, of sexuality and relationship with God, self, and others. Catholic Journeymen is a safe space for men to share burdens, to receive support, and to be nourished by a distinctive program combining behavioral health science and the Catholic tradition. That's led by Dr. Jerry Crete, licensed marriage and family therapist and co-founder of Souls and Hearts. All of that is on soulsandhearts.com. It's really the hub for all things that are both Catholic and psychological, all things that are both Catholic and about human formation. And remember, again, an invitation. Call me on my cell any Tuesday and Thursday, 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 317-567-9594. My phone number. Uh, email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. But do keep the email short. If you're going to email me, it's hard sometimes to get emails that are you know two, three, four pages long. Keep the email short you'll be much more likely to get a more rapid response. So I want to thank you for your attention, for being with me today on this journey. And we'll invoke our patroness and our patron of souls and hearts, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us, St. John the Baptist. Pray for us.